Right. Colossians chapter 1, if you go ahead and turn there. I was sitting there thinking when uh, Wesley was giving, uh, I'm sorry, uh, what's his name? Corby was giving the whole idea about what VBS was all about and the dry butt thing. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't think First Baptist Church anywhere would ever have the dry butt th uh, thing about diapers. I, I just couldn't imagine that happening in a kind of a, a, a First Baptist type church. But anyway, uh, we're not a First Baptist type church, okay? We don't mind talking about poop and butts and everything else around here, but we do welcome you being here this morning. Let me give you an update on some of the construction. Things are continuing to progress. Uh, we're starting to see the... Uh, uh, the stadium seating come together to framing that in. All the demolition's been done. They're moving ahead. Uh, you can peek in there if you'd like at some point, but uh, it is uh, pretty cool to see things kind of coming together. Thank you for bearing with us. Those in the live stream room, those uh, maybe didn't feel like you could come, uh, and then of course you putting up with a room like this. It actually has worked out pretty good for us, uh, but we do have several weeks to go in here, so we hope you'll continue to put up with us a little bit longer. We're Continuing to look now today at the supremacy of Christ. Now, I did not finish last week's sermon, and so all I did was kind of roll it into this week's sermon. Okay, so those of you who are careful note takers and you basically fill in everything and you keep up with it, thank you so much for doing that, but I may have messed you up a little bit, okay? But what I'm going to do at the beginning of this sermon is kind of finish last week, the part I didn't get to, and then hopefully uh, get through the part I was supposed to get to today because we're kind of on a schedule with the scripture itself. So I do apologize for that. Today we're looking at how Jesus delivers. What Jesus has provided for us in the way of salvation is it's one of those things that we must understand what the benefits of what all that's about. And really, when you think about who Jesus is, what he's done on our behalf, once we come to know him as our Lord and Savior, it does take discipleship to help people understand the full meaning and the weight and the gravity of what their salvation is all about. And so basically, Paul is doing a great job here explaining that to us. So look at the introduction. When you come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have in him, everything necessary to be restored to him and have eternal life in heaven. And that's pretty much what we looked at last week. But this week, we're adding these thoughts. You even have what it takes to live victoriously in a fallen world. And we see that everything that Christ has provided uh, for us is one of those things in which we now see that Christ desires us to not only embrace that, accept that, but live that. And that's what we see in the passage we're going to look at today. So the first thing we see here on the outline is the purpose Jesus displayed. Look at verse 22. It says, in the body of his flesh through death. Now, why would he do that? What was the purpose of doing that? What was the plan of God? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So Jesus' death on the cross was one in which he took on the penalty of our sin. He literally was uh, made sin. Not that he was a sinner. He was made sin. And sin was placed upon him in such a way that now we can be presented before God wholly blameless and above, uh, above reproach. The word to present literally means to formally introduce. Now I want you to think about this. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's how God sees you right now. Based on what Jesus did on your behalf. You're holy. How many of you in here feel holy today? Don't feel it sometimes, do we? 
But the Bible declares you holy, blameless, wow, and above reproach. That is the picture in which God, when he looks at you today, that's what he sees. And guess who created that whole scenario? Jesus did on the cross. And so that is what has been given to us. Now, let me just say this. The word present, to present, is in a future tense, which means those reconciled to God will be introduced to the world in the future at the second coming of Jesus. Now, now here's why you don't feel so holy, blameless, and beyond uh, reproach, or yeah, above reproach, is because the completed work of your salvation has not taken place yet. Did you know that? The completed work at salvation is when you see Jesus face to face. When this body of flesh is laid down, you have the completed form of our salvation. The completed form of our salvation has not happened yet. So there is a present, there's a future implication here. But not only is there a future implication, the Bible says presently that's who we are. So does that not blow your mind a little bit? And that's who we are in Christ. So look on your outline. To introduce holy, which literally means set apart from sin to God. You've been set apart from sin. You're no longer identified by your sin. You're identified by who you are in Christ. It's a big deal. And it literally means you're being declared righteous. Next, to introduce blameless literally means without spot. It's the idea of total removal of sin and guilt. Total removal of sin and guilt. I don't know about you, but I'm... (laughs) You've heard my stories. I'm kind of a clean freak in many ways, okay? Uh, I do take several showers a day. I know that sounds sick and messed up, but uh, I will take one when I get up in the morning and when I go to bed at night. Some of you are like, that's a little more information than I want to hear. I wasn't prepared for that, but I'm giving it to you. And then sometimes if, uh, like during the day, I'm mowing the grass or doing something, there may be a third shower that day. That's just who I am. Did I hear someone say, preach it? Really, that's you too. Okay, good. All right. You're weird. But anyway, no, <laughs> that means I'm weird. But the, but the point is, I like to be clean. And I, I want my clothes to be clean. I mean, it drives me crazy. My wife will attest to this. Uh, it, it wasn't that long ago I bought some shorts, and, and they were newer shorts, and I dropped oil on the pants. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to throw these things away. I mean, just a little bit of drop of oil was just setting me off. Some of you are like, man, you're really messed up. I know that, okay? Um, there's a part of confession that's associated with this. But anyway, I worked through three cleanings of those pants to get that one little spot. You couldn't even see it. If I were standing here, you wouldn't be able to see it. But guess what? I knew it. I knew it. And it bothered me. Even though it was there, you couldn't see it, but I knew it was there. So when I look at something like this, that we're without spot, that's more than any shower you could ever take, more than any kind of cleanliness you can bring to your clothing. I mean, this is beyond cleanliness. And yet we are declared that. It's the total removal of sin and guilt. And literally when you think about it, and the guilt and shame that's associated with that sin. That blows my mind. Next, to introduce above reproach, which means no accusation. No accusation. Now, the legal term here is the meaning that no charges will be brought against. How many of you are glad you're going to stand before God one day, knowing what's a part of what you once were, 
And you're going to stand before him, and guess what? There'll be no charges brought against you. That is beyond, I mean, that's just crazy talk in some ways. But before a holy God, standing before him, no charges, no accusations. Now, I want you to think about that. There's nothing in this world that offers that picture of salvation. Nothing comes even close to it. So if you were to say, okay, we got all these world religions, we got all these thoughts about who God is and all these different ideas, this is an accurate picture of what Paul was showing us right here in the text. Jesus confirmed all this. He not only confirmed all this, he made it all possible, and yet we're sitting here today. That is unlike any other world religion that's hanging out there. There's nothing that even comes close to what Christianity brings as, as, as part of its message of salvation. Not even close. And we see this. Next, we see the prince Jesus laid. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Basically, Paul received this message, and he wanted everyone else to know this message. But here's the caveat to what we just read and what we just said. Now, think about this. We're, we're going to be introduced one day as holy, blameless, above reproach. Now, think about that. But when it comes to understanding the full gravity of what salvation is all about, he then flips the script a little bit, and he basically says, now, if you really want to know if this, this whole arrangement of salvation been, has come to you, this is what it will look like. He says, you will be grounded. You will be steadfast. You're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So there's conditions. It's not really conditions for salvation. It's the fact that you've been declared this as a result of being declared that because there is that granting of salvation. Now this will be a part of how you conduct yourself. Now think about that. This verse literally points out the evidence that a person has been reconciled to God. A reconciled person's life will demonstrate certain changes about his or her faith. Now, think about this. How many of you would agree that the God that we serve is a great God? And if a great God touches us at any point, I believe there will be a great transformation. I really believe that. Now, it doesn't talk about perfection. The Bible, I mean, Paul even says that. I'm not a perfect, well, I'm the least of the apostles. He's basically saying, I have failed in so many ways it's imaginable. Before my life and even right now, I'm still dealing with the struggle. We read about that in Romans chapter 7. But he says there's something that's going to be different about us. So look on your outline. There's a faith that is grounded, and it is grounded how? The Bible seems to indicate that we, we have a love for God. There's a love for God that comes with this faith that comes with the salvation, a faith that is steadfast. To me, when you look at this, you look at the context of what Paul seems to be saying, it, this is a person who has a hatred for sin, a hatred for sin. Now, now let's put this in a, on a practical level. Number one, we've been set apart from sin for God. So therefore, that's how he sees us, and that's, where, that's the reality in which we should attempt to live. So as a result, we now have a new love for God on behalf of everything that he's done on our behalf. When we, were with that, when we were undone, when we were in our sin, there was nothing we could do about it. 
God literally transitioned us by setting us apart from sin to him. Now, as a result, everything about who we are changes. Now there is a hatred for sin, even the sin that we may commit. There's a hatred for it. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not a perfect person. I've got someone that lives with me that can attest to that, okay? And she reminds me of that sometimes, okay? That I'm not a perfect person, and she helps me with that. Helps me understand fully the implications of the fact that I'm not perfect. <laughs> I do the same thing there. But, but anyway, but the point I'm trying to make here is the fact that there's going, to be, there's going to be something that changes about how things hit our lives now. We won't be out there making our own way, trying to get all we can, all that. There will always, as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf, and we're going to explain more about where this comes from, there will always be a check, and there will always, there will always be a, a, a certain disgust about our sin. And I don't know about you, but the way it plays out in my life, it shows up as guilt and shame. Did you know that is a sign of disgust for sin? Is the weight that the guilt and shame has creates that. And, and, and I'm living that. I, I live that at times, just like you do. And so we have this that's going on. But then he says, a faith that is not moved away from the hope. And really, when you think about what he's trying to say here, they have a, it has a desire for obedience. We desire to do what's right. But sometimes we come up short. And listen, if you say that's your testimony, you're in good company. Paul says it in Romans chapter 7. He's very clear about the struggle as he begins to try to live in obedience. So if a person says they were a follower of Jesus, let's just put it on the bottom shelf. If a person says they're a follower of Jesus, they've accepted the salvation that God offers, and yet habitually lives in sin, shows no concern for repentance, forgiveness, even worship or fellowship with other believers, then they prove, I believe, that they're not a follower of Jesus. Because the Bible talks about us being set apart to something. Something changes. There's a new reality in which we see and do and react to. That's clear what we see here. So, let's look at verse 23 again. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, think about that. How do, you, how do you stand firm? Think about what he's saying. He's literally saying you got to stand firm. That's what grounded and steadfast means. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul talks about this in his other epistles, he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He's basically saying there comes a point in which that transition has taken place in our life that we need to start to grow and mature in the faith that we have. That we come to, under, to the understanding, we're going to learn this in just a little while, we come to understand the scope of the love of God. We understand fully what he's done on our behalf. We begin to understand the confusion that may come with us when, when we come from uh, where we were, where we were set apart to our sin. Now we're set apart to God through Jesus Christ. And now we fully begin to understand what's going on, this new dynamic. That's discipleship. And Paul was basically saying, we shouldn't be, stay as children like this. He even says in another place in the Bible that we, we got to get off the milk of the word. And get to the meat, to the truly, 
to truly understand. And I think so many times when we read scripture, we, sit, we feel condemned when we hear things like that. That we move from the milk, that we get to the, from the milk to the meat of the word. And it's that idea. But here's the whole thing. We shouldn't read that under the guidelines of condemnation. We should read it under the guidelines of the fact that God wants so much more for us. And that's what he desires. He says, so how do we get there? Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. He's talking about the fact that when he says speaking the truth in love, he's not talking about a bunch of facts. Now, let's just be honest. How many of us know a bunch of facts about Jesus because maybe we were raised in the church? We know a bunch of facts about Jesus, okay? Uh, and we can say all these things, and we probably would be, 90% of everything we say would probably be correct. In what he's talking about here, especially what he's talking about in Colossians and what we're going to look at in just a moment, he's not talking about a general acceptance of facts. He's talking about an experience. There's a new experience that's associated with this thing of salvation. So that's how we look. Now, let's look at the next thing, the presence of Jesus in your life. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is talking now about his motivation and his passion. And basically, the reason I think he's giving these three verses, or the, yeah, these three verses, is because he's he's being accused of manipulating people. Literally, when you look at it. Now, how can you accuse Paul of manip manipulating people, especially when you know what his outcome of his life's going to be? You, you know he's going to be executed, right? For the cause of Christ. And we begin to see this. So he says in verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. God called him. God saw a plan. He began to incorporate Paul into this plan to, to make himself known, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So basically, when you think about this, I want you to think about that word mystery. Look at verse 26, the mystery. When you begin to look at something that is a mystery, especially in the context that Paul uses on several occasions in Scripture, he's talking about from something that's either not known or partially known, so there, there may be something that is completely unknown or partially unknown, but the goal of the mystery is to come to complete knowledge of the unknown. Now, I want you to think about this. He could be talking, and we believe he's talking about the Old Testament. How many of you, when you read the Old Testament, and now that you're understanding more fully of who Jesus is, you almost see Jesus on every page of the Old Testament? You begin to go back there, and you, you're starting to understand fully who Jesus is, and all of a sudden, you go back and you restudy the Old Testament, and all of a sudden, you see Jesus. Oh, my goodness. He's showing up everywhere. There was a partial mystery over here. When Jesus stepped on the scene, the mystery was no longer a mystery. We now have complete knowledge of it all. Of, and, and, and Paul is basically saying, in the context he's talking about, the complete mystery as it relates to not only who Jesus is, but what his salvation brings. Think about that. It's now re been revealed who, to whom? His saints. What we just read, listen, was not always the case for Paul. Did you know that Paul was once under the delusion and, and he was doing his best to live out the Old Testament? 
I mean, think about this. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. Let me tell you how well some of them Pharisees knew the Old Testament. Many of them had memorized the whole Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. How many of you have a hard time memorizing one verse? Yeah. The whole Torah. They could just give you what you need. Paul was probably, if he wasn't that, he was probably close to that. Paul knew, at least in his mind, who God was. But all of a sudden, when Jesus, you remember when Jesus made himself known to him? Everything changed. Everything changed. And Paul now went from persecuting the church. What he thought he was doing over here was protecting the identity of God. Now the mystery's been revealed in such, in such a way that Jesus shows up. The full mystery's now been completed. And you know what we read about after his conversion? You know what we read about? He then goes into the wilderness, the Bible says, for three years. For three years. Here's where I, here's where I can imagine Paul was. The complete mystery's been filled in. The Old Testament, we had a partial, a partial mystery. Didn't we? Would you agree with that? And all of a sudden, he goes back to the Old Testament. He's studying this. He's like, oh, my goodness. That's a picture of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. This is revealing the character of God that we now see in Jesus. Oh, my goodness. It becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And Paul is talking about that he is one who's come to make the mystery known to all. The complete picture of who Jesus is and his salvation. So, the presence of Jesus in your life. Let's, get, let's put it where it uh, associates with you. The presence of Jesus in your life, look on your outline, at salvation. Okay? What happens at salvation? For some of you, it may surprise you, but listen to this. He's talking about literally the idea of your spiritual location. Not just that your spirit has been awakened, but now, what is its location? Look at verse 2 of Colossians 1. Go back a little bit. He says, To the saints and faithful brethren, could be cistern too, okay? In Christ, who were in Colossae. Now physically, who was he writing to in a physical sense? Those in Colossae. But he's talking about a spiritual location here when he says where? In Christ. Okay? That's salvation. That's what happens. You come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He sets you apart from sin to God. You're declared righteous. You're declared holy. You're above accusation. You're blameless. And now you're sitting over here. And now God says you're now in Christ. That's a big deal. So we are in Christ. But now verse 27, if you look at verse 27, tells us that Christ now is in us. It's not two-sided. It's not one-sided, I should say. It's, it's two sides. We're in Christ, and he's in us. How many of you, that's still a mystery to some extent? That's what we have here. And, and so he, he's beginning to see it. You know what we just sang? I was listening to the words. You remember the, the song we sang, and the, some of the wording was, I am yours and you are mine? It's the same language. In Christ... And he's in me. It's a beautiful passage, beautiful way of saying it. John, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, look here on the screen. He says, at that day, you will know that I 
am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's talking about, the day he's talking about, all scholars agree, he's talking about Acts chapter 2. He's talking about at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers in a, in a way that God had never revealed himself. That was another mystery that was brought in. Now the Holy Spirit's living in believers. And he's basically saying, at that time, all these mysteries that right now you're having a hard time getting your mind around, there's going to be some things that will begin to make sense. You stay in the Word. You become steadfast. You become grounded in the Word. And all of a sudden, there's going to be revelation after revelation that will come, and the mystery will become clearer and clearer of who Jesus truly is. How many of you would say that is your testimony story? And it should be for all of us that we come to a greater understanding and so he says, and if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home how? With him. That's a whole different language than what you read in the Old Testament. It's almost like the Old Testament, everything is happening upon people. Have you noticed that? Go read the Old Testament carefully and you'll see that God acts upon people. What's the language of the New Testament? He acts within people. There, there's some pretty amazing things here when you begin to put it all together. And that's part of the mystery that's been revealed. So some, here, here's, what, here's what happens. I want to flip the table a little bit in our conversation. Some have the idea that after they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they are basically on their own. So that's, and basically that tells me that they're basically sitting there and yeah, something's happened in their life, but they still got to grunt through this life. How many of you are glad you don't have to just grunt through this life? No, the Bible says, as a result of what we've been set apart to, as a result of the salvation that we have, there, there's even more glory associated with it than just getting through this life or waiting for the life to come. There's something that happens here. And so some people would say, well, I'm going to live the Christian life, and here's how they define it. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to try to act the way I ought to act. I'm going to try to live the way I ought to live. Now, how many of you at some point in your life, you thought, that is the goal? <laughs> now, could that be the outcome of what God desires? It could be, but that's not the goal. We're going to read something here in just a moment. Literally, the goal is for Christ to live through you. Now, could it mean that as a result of living through you, you got a hunger for God's word? Yeah, but you're not just reading God's word. You got a hunger for it. It's not just, well, I got to go to church. Man, I, got, I need the church. I need that. I need other people around me. I need other people to affirm and reaffirm my faith. It's those things. So this mentality has them playing a part. When you think about it, if you're just reading the Bible, you're just going to church, you're trying to attempt to do what you ought to do and act the way you ought to act, that's language of playing a part. How many of you at times try to play the Christian part? That's not the language of the Bible. The language of the Bible is God living through you. It's not playing a part. It's him living through you. And there's some powerful things associated with that. Just as there was nothing you could do to save yourself. You didn't wake up one day and say, heard about this Jesus stuff, think I'll take it. 
No, he revealed himself to you. He, the Bible says he wooed you to himself. He drew you to himself. Okay? Just as none of that. There's nothing you can do also in your own strength to live the life he desires. So there was nothing we could do to get out of this situation. He had to bring us into this new reality. And there's nothing that we can do to live the life he's called us to live over here. Not in and of itself. The life he's called us to live is to allow himself to live through us. That's the language of the New Testament. That's the desire. So, when going up against the enemy, how many of you think you went up against the enemy this week? How many of you are aware of spiritual warfare? You better be aware of spiritual warfare. It'll come at you in ways you ever, never imagined. So when we're going up against the enemy, the world, how many of you feel like sometimes you're, and we talk about this, but swimming upstream from the world? Everything there, you're, you're, I mean, literally, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to live my life. And there's times I fail. I'm, I'm not trying to act perfection up here. I'm not perfected. And I feel like sometimes I'm going in this direction. The world's going in this direction. I don't know about you, but I'm like, what was that? About to fall down up here. I mean, how many of you feel that way sometimes? It blows your mind, the matter of delusion that's out there and all the things that are there. And you're like, what is happening? You ever been there? How about this? We're also going up against our flesh. You won't be successful battling your flesh in your own strength. It's all about letting Christ live through you. John said this in 1 John, greater is he that's in me than what? He that's in the world. You know who's in the world? The enemy's in the world. The world's in the world. If left to my own, my flesh is in and of the world. All of us bent that way. So where's the answer? Look at your outline. The presence of Jesus in your life at salvation, but also through salvation. This is the key. So how does the presence of Jesus come through my life? Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says it well. Look here on the screen. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, how? Through faith. That's the connection we have with God. The Bible says it is through faith we have this connection. We can't please him a part of faith. We don't know him a part of, from faith. It's all about that. So, so we got that going on. That you be rooted and grounded, how? In love. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you read the Bible and you think you understand something, all of a sudden you read it, and then all of a sudden you have this phrase, in love. Do you sit there and think, oh, I didn't, I didn't put that connection together. What's he talking about? What's so great about the love of God? The love of God's what came to you. The Bible says his love came to you when you came to know him at salvation. His love will keep you there. Okay, so he, it's really the identification of his love that he has that we may be able to comprehend with, this is an important phrase, with all the saints. What does that imply? That we need each other. We need each other. We really do. I mean, how many of you, there's times where, <laughs> now you got to be in the right frame of mind for this to work. How many of you, there's times where you're defeated in your faith? And you hear someone talk about what God has done in their life. And, and all of a sudden you look at that and it encourages you. And you're like, you know, God, you're fully capable of doing the same thing in my life. Thank you for that story. But let me tell you where many of us carry that. 
many of us have a sense of entitlement that God has to do certain things. And that's a, a, a Western thought, a great old American seed that's been planted in us, that we're entitled to certain things. And for some of us, we look at that situation and we say, well, why, can't, why haven't you done that in my life? You're blessing them. Seems to be real over here. But, but did you know that if we were to look at that and we were embrace what God has done over there, you know what helps us many times? I don't know about you. It gets my eyes off myself, and it helps me to celebrate not only what's going on in that person's life, it brings me to a greater understanding of how to worship God because of what God's done in that person's life. And there becomes more clarity to where I am. But if I'm always in the flesh and I'm always, woe is me, and I'm entitled, I'll never get there. It's got to be him working through us. We need each other. What do we need each other for? That we may understand the width and length and depth and height to know what? The love of Christ, which passes all knowledge. Think about that. His love surpasses anything that I may construct in my mind about him or for him and through him. His love supersedes all that. It's just there. I'm surrounded by it. And y'all, there's times my knowledge is correct. How many of you would say that? And there's times I miss it. But nothing still touches what? The love that's there. It's always there. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You're not going to have that with an entitled a worldview where you think you're entitled to something, but when you can go celebrate with that person and see it for what it is and, and do that, then guess what? The fullness of God, there's a reality of the fullness of God maybe in that person's life, and you can celebrate with them. And then it says, Now to him who is able to do it seemingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according, here's the key, according to the what? Power that works in us. So when Christ came, the Bible says we're in Christ. He's in us. And so all of a sudden, there's this whole new power that's available. I personally believe that there's the step that we, we, we would look at and say, well, where does it come from? It's from the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Because when you think about it, in John chapter 14, when Jesus was talking about, I got to go, that something else may come, the comforter, he's the embodiment and presence of Jesus is what the Holy Spirit is. And he's the one doing the work in and through us. Next, not only do we see the presence of Jesus in your life, but also the prospect of Jesus in your life. Look at Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, among the Gentiles would be the idea of those who are not Jewish. Those who, it appears, are outside the faith. Who, who, who were God's people in the Old Testament? The Jews. The Jews were called to make him known to the world. But by the time we get to the first century where Paul's writing this, the Jews have claimed the corner and the market on God. And he's constantly talking about, we got to reach the Gentiles. We've got to reach those who are beyond the covenant that God had with Israel. And he's talking about that over and over again. But then he comes to this. He says, which in Christ in you is the hope of glory. So Christ, Jesus, brings to you all the, greatest thing, all the great things God has in store for you. Jesus living through you, listen, literally becomes you living the word of God. That's really, literally what it becomes. 
for many of us, we would say the future can be very haunting at times. How many of you agree with that? You know, when you're young, you don't seem to have a whole lot of fear, do you? How many of you noticed when you were younger, there was almost some arrogance associated with it? Oh, I can do this, I can do that, and I can do... And you probably could do a whole lot more back then, let's just face it. But the fact is, as we get older, we begin to understand how much less control we think we, we, we really have. How many of you have discovered that? Life becomes fragile as we get older, doesn't it? More fragile. And, and, and here's what happens. Many times the future brings anxiety and apprehension. What's going to happen out there in the future? How are the kids going to turn out? What's going to happen with my body? How will the elections turn out? But, but, we, we, but we, through the life he gives us, can live above the circumstances and the fears that are all around. That's what he's offering here. Think about that. The life, the life, this life he gives us, he gives us joy in the midst of suffering. How many of you have ever seen that firsthand? It'll blow your mind if you've never seen it. When you look at someone, they have a joy, and you can't imagine dealing with what they're dealing with, and they got that joy, Jesus becomes more real. Not only to them, it becomes real to you. How about this? This life gives us peace in the midst of our fears. How many of you ever had a peace that surpasses all understanding? Fear that surpasses all understanding. Understanding is, this is typically how things go here on earth and all that, but I'm going to have a peace that overcomes this understanding that we have, which is normally caught up in our fears and our anxiety. That's a big deal. And here's how he says it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word hope there means confident expectation. The word glory there means that will be found at his appearing. There's a confident expectation that's found at his appearing. Let Let me ask you a question. How many of you are waiting for the appearing of, of Jesus? We're waiting for that, right? Some of us just soon bypass the grave and just kind of let that happen, right? It, that's kind of what we'd love to see, wouldn't it? But, but here's what I want you to understand. Can we, see, can we still see Christ appear in the little moments? We can. When he answers prayer. When, when, he, when he does things that only he could have done. When you've shared your heart and all of a sudden he answers something right there. It's an earnest expectation. It's a confident expectation. Next, the power of Jesus in your life. Look at verse 28 and 29. Paul says, In him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man, every person, perfect in Christ Jesus. That means maturing. To this end I also labor, striving striving according to his working, which which works in me mightily. He's basically saying there's something else that's taking over. And if I will yield to that, if I will listen to that, it's going to pay off big dividends. And the biggest part of it is it will give me a power and a strength to overcome. I remember I had a very short window of a football life in junior high and, and then uh, JV ball. Very, very short, by the way. Uh, by the time I, was, I hit the eighth grade, I was this tall. I hadn't grown an inch and since I was six foot tall, 120 pounds. You can imagine what that looks like. Uh, it's like a skeleton walking around. That, that was me. Uh, and, and, and what was interesting is the, I had a good arm. I could throw the ball down the field. And in middle school, that was a big deal to have someone throw the ball down the field. And 
I had that, I had, they, they had one play. They didn't let me be the quarterback because if I were to go back, I'd trip over my big old feet at the time. Wasn't used to them. But anyway, <laughs> I was very clumsy. But, but here's the one play they would call. They would call it where I would play tight end and I would step back off the line and the quarterback would pitch it out to me and I would throw the ball downfield, okay? That was the one play that was always called. And I remember at times when it was called in the huddle, but by the time we got from the huddle to the quarterback actually making the decision to do that, the ball never came to me. Never came to me. I knew the play. I was ready for it. But he'd always hand it to the 220-pound uh, eighth grader that could bust through a line. And, and I'll be honest with you. I didn't blame him. <laughs> Who wants to give it to this guy? You want to give it to this guy? He could bust through the line. There was power there, okay? And I get all that. But here's the point. There's many of us, and we desire the ball, but we're going to operate in our own strength. And I'll be honest with you. I have actually touched the ball in a game, and I got slaughtered, and I quit. After 120-pound body, six foot tall, when it gets hit, they don't like it. And I got slaughtered. But guess what? The guy who's 220 who could bust through the line, over and over again. And we, we had a good team because of him. Here's the problem. We want to keep the ball. And I don't know about you, I've been slaughtered a lot keeping the ball and the ball of life. Any of you? There's times we just need to give it up and give it to Jesus and let him take it. He's saying this is what's offered to us. So what are we doing? We're literally, we're doing an exchanging power. Look on your outline from you to Jesus. That's where the phrase, I can do all things, or the verse, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me, empowers me. It comes through him. But then there's not just an exchanging power, there's a maturing power. A maturing power. How many of you look at things differently than you did even, say, a year ago? I would attribute a lot of that probably because you become more grounded in your faith. That's how it's been working for me. But I want you to look at how the Old Testament looked at what we're talking about today. You're going to be very familiar with this verse. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. Here's the Old Testament's view of what we're talking about. He gives power to the weak, this is God, and to those who have no might. They have no power to overcome. He increases strength even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who what? Wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. But it goes further than that. It's not just a renewed strength. Look at what happens next. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the Old Testament version of what we're talking about today. And so the waiting speaks of patience. How many of you wish you had patience when you were younger? How many of you are younger and wish you had patience now? <laughs> How many of you are older and wish you still had patience? <laughs> he, I mean, he hints us where we're living. Flying speaks of, I believe, perspective. We're seeing it from God's perspective, but we're seeing all sides of the circumstances. Running speaks of endurance. Tough times, overcoming times. Walking speaks of trust, trusting God in everyday life situations. So here's the application. Is the phrase Christ in you, the hope of glory, a reality in your life? Yes. 
Is it? Do you see it? Do, do you sense his presence and power in your life? We're not going to sing here this morning. I'll kind of run over time, but I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. If you were to say, give me one word or give me one verse in the Bible that speaks to what we talked about here today. It's got to be Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I've identified with his salvation. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a, a synopsis of what we've just been talking about. Would you pray with me, Father? We just come to you right now. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for that salvation. We thank you for that maturing power that is available to all of us. And Father, right now, we just ask you to continue to work in our lives as we become all that you desire us to be. That we become the one that comes to the realization that I am in you and you are in me. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.